Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a digital content creator, patient advocate, and co-founder of Fertility Matters at Work, which is on a mission to get you better supported whilst going through all this at work. And I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. In this new series of the Fertility Podcast, we're going behind the scenes of IVF. Do listen to the end of every episode because we want to hear from you. Let's get stuck in. This series of The Fertility Podcast is sponsored by Tomorrow, whose mission is to safeguard life's most precious cells using their technology to bring a new standard of care to the management of frozen eggs and embryos. Now, the millions of frozen eggs and embryos under clinic care today are using tools and technologies not updated in decades. When Tomorrow came along, it brought much needed innovation to IVF labs. Learn more by visiting tomorrow.org. So we're back. Welcome to this new series of the Fertility Podcast. Kate and I might not have been with you, but we still have been together. Although I realized when I was trying to do the artwork for this um, series that we still haven't had pictures taken for ages. And in fact, on my phone timeline, those pictures we had of us in the Buttercup field was about this time last year. It was. Well, it was May, wasn't it? Because Buttercups are going over now and they're in my field that I walk the dog. So yeah, it is we need to do some more and actually we need to get together well we definitely need some more because I've lost quite a lot of weight since then so I want to do some more photos please not that you didn't look gorgeous on the other ones but Mm. how was your jubilee celebrations my jubilee celebrations were great in our village we had um a rounders match on the Thursday and a street party on the Friday and then the weekend was my last ever yoga teacher training weekend so I am now a trained yoga teacher well done on your um, yoga practice. Thank and you. I know that we're all very excited to see what comes of it when we can do yoga with Kate. I know you're thinking it through. Maybe that's where our next photo shoot will be. I will come, we'll do some yoga and then we'll have some photos. Cool. That would be nice. You're on. Um, yeah, my Jubilee weekend was uh, kind of, uh, it was a, a celebration of my brother's 25th wedding anniversary oh. as well, which was lush. Congratulations, Loads of people there. Yeah, they had a, a, like a whole party full of weekend, a, a whole weekend full of parties. <laughs> um, we also managed to go to a gig. There was this festival happening oh, where Mile and a Half Works. We got to stand amongst people and just jump around like crazy people. So that was fun. And lots of like flag flying going on. No street parties. I live on a really busy street and nobody, I think everybody thought someone else might have organized it, but nobody did. So we just visited a, a few other people's uh, celebrations on the Sunday in a slightly slow state, having had a busy <laughs> A busy Saturday night. But we're back and we're really looking forward to sharing this new series with you. What we've got coming up is a series of conversations that we're calling behind the scenes of IVF to just maybe get you thinking about things you haven't thought about. And I know when I suggested it to you, Kate, you were like, okay, yeah, we could go there. I mean, I'm quite excited about it because I think it's quite interesting. It's the things that perhaps you don't always think about but are actually there and what's more important is they are considerations they are they are potentially big things that we're talking about here but we just don't necessarily know them exactly and that's kind of where we're starting with this first episode which we're kind of saying how green is your clinic and we also want to answer that with do you care if your IVF clinic has green credentials because again when I started talking to you Kate about this and I was kind of saying it's not something I thought about and you were saying similarly that you hadn't really thought about it either until now. Totally fair to say which is bizarre given the fact that in our homes I don't know about you Nat but I'm massively into 
recycling and being as green as I possibly can. Yeah. I hadn't even considered it when it comes to fertility clinics. Yeah. And if you think about this, almost 2.5 million IVF cycles are completed around the world every year. And we know, sadly, that the number is rising. And the thing is, there's so many disposable items that are used in procedures. There's also a whole like supply chain that's related to this business. So it might not surprise you to hear that this sector has got quite a footprint on the uh, environmental front. And we're just kind of curious as to whether it's going to be easier for clinics to shift to a greener path because it is going to take some planning and the change is kind of starting. So we're going to be hearing from some people who are pushing forward really to to make their peers take notice of what more could be done. If we were to say to you, for example, that per cycle, per consumer, the portion of greenhouse gas emissions could be higher than any other healthcare related procedure or that IVF might be responsible for 0.5% of global pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, what do you think of that stat, Kate? It just makes me really scared. It's huge. And do you know where my mind goes straight away to um, David Attenborough's beautiful programme showing the oceans and plastics in the oceans and poor turtles with plastic bags around their faces and necks and, oh, that's where my head goes. So the funniest thing just happened, as I just said to Kate, I can't quite hear you properly. And then we had to just have to do a little reset there. And hopefully now you can hear Kate loud and clear. Hopefully you can. I didn't even realise that you weren't coming in through my headphones. How stupid is that? <laughs> well, because we've had the headphones and the mics plugged in. But I'm such an amateur. Let's continue because we want to get what you think about this whole green conversation. And at the end of the episode, to make sure you're listening through to the end, we will make sure that we tell you how you can get in touch with us. So as we've been talking about how important is your clinic being green to you, is the number one priority for those of you that have to walk through a clinic door that green credentials matter? I know, Nat, when we've been talking about it, you said that you didn't even think about it when you were going through treatment. Is that right? I don't, yeah, I mean, my green conscientiousness is much more prominent now, seven years on. And I'm still not sure if, even though I do try to be a, a good hippie, I still don't know whether if I was going to a clinic now, whether I would take it into consideration. Is it something that any of your coaching clients have ever talked about? No, I've never had those conversations. And, you know, it's never even occurred to me. I mean, I haven't worked in the clinic environment for a very long time. And perhaps now if I were and I was putting plastic wrapping or containers into a yellow bin, which is the clinical waste bin that we would use, that that might, that might resonate with me more now. I don't know. Mm. But then I think within the healthcare environment, we're so used to consumables and for infection control that has to be that way to a certain extent that I don't know if it would even register with me. So I think if we're thinking that, I can completely understand why patients might not be but we'd love to hear what you think you know tell us whether it's something that you you have considered or potentially would go on to consider now because it is still a relatively new thing we're talking about a 40 year old science and we want them to be considering green credentials um and so we've been trying to find out who is interested in in making the change and from what we've found it seems like it's the embryologists who are seeing firsthand those disposables and the amounts of plastics. And they're the ones 
talking more about it. So what you're going to hear first is a conversation that Kate and I had with Danny Smale, who is a locum embryologist, and she explains research that she carried out with care in 2018, um, and she started looking at how much plastic was being used in a year. My name's Danny Smale, and I'm a locum embryologist. I did a bit of research back in 2018 when I was a sort of trainee embryologist at Care Fertility in London. Now, this is a busy clinic, um, and I just had the realisation that we are using a lot of plastic in our IVF processes. And I just wanted to have a sort of look at how much plastic we were using, uh, just to give ourselves a little bit of an overview of what we use in a year. And the results were, quite frankly, shocking. Mm. Um, So firstly, I looked at how many cycles we're doing. And then I calculated sort of the average number of different consumables that we were using for each one of our procedures. And then kind of using our numbers from three months in terms of cycle numbers gave us a rough estimation of how much plastic where we were using. Go on then. So annually, we were going to be using approximately 69,500 consumables. And that results in 22,000 about 800 pieces of packaging. So the packaging that I'm talking about is just the the plastic packaging that comes sort of that holds each set of consumables together. This doesn't include the postal packaging or anything else um, like that. And Danny, were there there already any recycling processes in place, just like we have in the home within the clinic? In that clinic particularly, just at that time, I'm not sure obviously how it is now, we were not very good at recycling. Uh, It was quite difficult, especially being in London and especially where the clinic was situated in itself, uh, being inside um, sort of an apartment-esque building. Um, It was incredibly difficult to do sort of really thorough recycling for our disposables. And also within IVF and science, it's incredibly difficult to recycle your plastic consumables anyway, because of course they've been in contact. So they're then hazardous, exactly that. Mm. But for for certain things, you know, like you say, packaging, where that's not being contaminated, then presumably that could be recycled. Potentially. I personally, I think you probably can't because it's the plastic packaging. So it's not... I don't know if it falls within that recyclable category, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, because so some, some plastics the... do, don't they? Some do, but it wasn't obviously clear. I can't imagine these were, yeah. but there was nothing to indicate that they could be recycled. Um, what what kind of, how was it met when you were having these conversations? Were people like, oh gosh, I've never even thought about it? Or were people like, I know, it's just that, like you've just highlighted, how on earth do we overcome this when it's coming from the manufacturers in that? you know, we need to take up with them, we don't have the facilities here. Was it met with resistance or people thinking, yeah, actually, we need to address this? I think people were really open-minded to it. They definitely were shocked by sort of how much we use. I think a lot of people suspected it would be big, you know, I mean, in terms of the numbers. But I think people were definitely open to change to reduce that because especially as at the time of the research, we it was sort of very much in the news that plastic was a huge um sort of pollutant to our planet and which is obviously why I was thinking about it um but people were very sort of eager to to change because it's many years now since I've worked in a clinical environment and I can honestly say it the whole time that I did it didn't even occur to me 
I think we're so used to in that clinical environment, opening up a package, taking out what we need to do and probably thinking, right, well, that's got to go into your yellow hazardous bag and not really thinking about where it goes from there. Now, like I said, it's a long time since I've worked in a clinical environment, a number of years. So it might be that I would think differently now, but certainly then I didn't give any any attention to that at all. I would say when I first started out, I wasn't particularly conscious of, mm. of waste or things like that. Actually, I think in certain labs, there is an element of like, oh, you know, I mean, oh, just get another one. It doesn't matter. Just, yeah. oh, chuck that one and get a new one. Um, and I think that is definitely sort of there. But it's, um, I think people are becoming a little bit more aware of it. And I think it also just depends on sort of the environment within the lab. If, if you are conscious, for example, I've worked in NHS labs before, and they are much more conscious. You can't of like, don't use sort of excess. Like, you're thinking about waste. Need. Yeah. They're, using, they're thinking more about cost, but mm-hmm. it ties with waste as well. And what about, for example, things like reusable caps that an embryologist could use? Because I know that's something from the work I've done with I3 that they're kind of promoting. Is that such a small change? But is that something that you've seen? Because you're now locuming, so you're obviously working in different clinic environments. Are you seeing different clinics doing different things? Yeah, so we do. I do see clinics doing different things. I personally have my own reusable caps and we brought that in at Wessex Fertility. Um, And I do see some people um, within clinics using the reusable hats, but to be honest, not that many. Uh, And I think some units still do have that element of, is this sort of infection control? Is this as clean as it could be? And they do prefer the disposables. but you do tend to see sort of different um, things that clinics are doing. For example, even though sort of maybe some of the glassware and bottles um, can't be recycled, um, they basically collect them up and then they've given them to, they wash them out and give them to um, schools and they use them in arts and crafts or in sort of little bits like that. So you're reusing it in a different way. And I have heard of other projects like that. It seems like it's the embryologists that are leading this conversation from what I've seen and from who I've been able to find for us to talk to on this podcast. It seems that the embryologists are the ones going, look at all this. What can we do? Rather than maybe other clinicians or other practitioners within the clinic. Would that be fair to say, Danny? I think that is 100% fair to say. I think it's just because we see it more. We see all the bottles we use. We see the different media. We see all the waste. We see the dishes. Um, whereas in comparison to in more of a clinical setting, you can't reuse things because you're doing, you mean, you're doing a very patient specific thing. And Mm. obviously you can't then be like, oh, this needle, I'm not going (laughs) to reuse it. Like it's, it's, it's a completely different story. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think ours is still sort of infection control is still sort of the height of our minds, but you do try and look for ways around it to try and make sure that you're maximising and reducing the waste. And what would you say, Danny, in terms of a patient's perception of this? Because as I said, when we first started chatting, I have mentioned this a bit on socials, whether you as a patient would maybe choose a clinic with its, you know, as a result of its green credentials or whether you'd be interested in knowing what your clinic did. Have you heard anything on the patient side I mean I know that's not maybe who you're interacting with about this you know you're you're hopefully delivering good news um as well as difficult news um do you have you got any insight on that to be honest I, th- I don't have a huge amount of insight on that but at the same time 
I just think that they have too many other things to think about. Yeah. The whole IVF process is a stressful, difficult, emotional process. So worrying about the plastic use from a clinic, I don't think is their top priority. And I'm sure you're, you're probably right, because we, we looked recently at the HEFEA um, survey that, that kind of showed what, what decisions people make in, in making a clinic and there were various mm. different parameters that they would consider. But actually for a clinic to be able to say, you know, have a stamp to say that it is green or it, you know, is, is thinking about sustainability or something mm. would be would be a real kind of good badge to have wouldn't it because I know that I would like to see that now that might not necessarily influence my choice over another depending on other important factors but actually to see that would make me feel good about that clinic that that clinic is thinking about wider implications. I completely agree I think it's a great way to actually differentiate yourself from the other clinics because yes obviously most patients go for success rates or location but actually Sometimes you're in a place where there are a number of different clinics and actually trying to decide which one you go to is incredibly difficult. So it could be another differentiator that you think, actually, you know what? I really like the sound of that. Let's go there. Um, So I definitely think it's something that would only be beneficial to the clinic if they sort of took it seriously and really looked into it. Totally agree. So it's so fascinating thinking about the numbers, isn't it? And I wonder whether when you, it's like quite stark to imagine what we're doing with those plastics. And when you hear it like that, it does get you thinking more, doesn't it? It does. I mean, yeah, it's quite shocking, isn't it? The amount, she looked at the amount that they're using, it was quite horrifying. But I completely understand, you know, what she's saying about it's really difficult to recycle in the healthcare environment. You know, thinking back to the places that I've worked in the past and that definitely wasn't set up. And so that has to be the start, isn't it? That you set up that ability to, to recycle or to, to use things in a very, very different way. Um, and especially given the fact that if you think about the NHS and the, the crisis financially, mm. the NHS finds itself in the moment, things have got to, to start being done differently. And that would make sense. Exactly. And one of the things that Danny had talked about was that like repurposing and giving stuff to local schools. And I had tried to have a chat with another embryologist called Roisin. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a presentation that she actually did for um, the International IVF Initiative, who I make a podcast for. They're like an amazing body of embryologists. If you want to geek out uh, about the world of embryology even more so, I'll put the link to the podcast in the show notes too. She'd presented um, all about waste and she was urging clinics to look at their waste management and she talks about things like transport and cold storage and the gases that are needed to store embryos, packaging. I mean, there's so many different elements that have quite a significant environmental impact. Um, Rasheen actually works with the Girl Guides and I know that her repurposing has been incorporated into that. So, I mean, even if, for example, all IVF clinics worked with guides and cubs and scouts as a starting point to give those you know those lab items I mean that could be an idea couldn't it it could but then I remember when my boys were little we used the school used to ask us for things that we could take in that they could make you know bits and pieces out cereal boxes and the rest of it but they wouldn't accept toilet rolls because of potential infection so I think that's changed I've sent loo rolls into school I'm sure (laughs) okay maybe it's just my school but if we're talking about glass surely glass is going to be clean before it's uh... well exactly and then you could argue well how you know, really, what's the risk of infection on a on a cardboard toilet roll? But there was apparently. So I don't know. That might pose some difficulties. So it's infection control that could potentially hinder this repurposing, couldn't 100%. it? One hundred percent. Yeah. 
Okay. When I was listening to this uh, presentation from Rasheen, though, she talked about the European Sperm Bank, who she'd previously worked with, and she used them as a great example because they had done this sustainability audit. They conducted this 44-page report. And so I wanted to catch up with Annemette Arndel Lawrenson, who is the CEO of the European Sperm Bank. Kate wasn't able to join me because there's all sorts of holidays going on everywhere and everybody's time has been insane. So you'll hear me chatting with Annemette about what they've done and then we'll, we'll catch up after. I think it's it's really important to the organization because we really care a lot about our quality uh, and our purpose and it's very much embedded in that purpose to to also work in compliance with um, you can say society parameters uh, and a part of that is really complying with the principle of the UN global compact. So can you talk through how you're looking to become more sustainable and what measures that that you're, you're taking as a result of you know what you found out we looked into the 17 different goals and principles and we selected what we really think matters to us we found three of the principles are very important number three the good health and well-being the five gender equality and 16 the strong institution and good business conduct that that's kind of the heart of European Sperm Bank. And then we have made a strategy around it, putting it into four pillars, and then we tie all our initiatives into those four strategic initiatives. And I found it really fascinating when I was looking at the report, at how you were looking at trying to find alternatives, for example, with transportation, the gas used, single-use plastics. Can you just tell me a bit about what you found out and what you're trying to change as a result? Yeah, first of all, we really tried to measure what we were using, because it turned out that that was actually not really clear for us. You have an idea, but you have never really measured it. So we started a complete measure. Of course, in our lab, we have a very small production. We are not really using a lot, but there's always something. We figured out that where we have the most environmental footprint is when we ship the product to the patients, where due to the time and the thawing process, you need that to go speedy. But then what can we do? For instance, we recycle all tanks so we don't use the dry ice because that requires a lot of plastic, that requires a lot of material. So we only use the large tanks where we can recycle year over year over year and where you can also actually optimize your shipment so that you can put you can bulk uh, sort of the straws to the to the clinic and you can maybe wait another day before you ship and then you can uh, you can add more uh, more into the same tank. So in that way, we really optimize the way that we are uh, utilizing. You can say how we contribute with CO2 and how we can limit that. We also realized that we could not, through that method, go down to zero. So we have decided we will become CO2 neutral in 2025. And uh, we will start already this year, reducing it to with about somewhere between 25 and 50%. And, and we will do that by minimizing as much as we can. And then the the rest of it we will offset or engage ourselves in planting trees or similar to do a truly offsetting of the COG. And what kind of impact has that had on your organisation from maybe the conversations amongst staff, amongst patients? Obviously, the paper is available for people on your website. But is it something that you're seeing patients in particular are interested in? I think more and more patients and, and employees and, and, and anyone actually realizes that a company can have high quality, can have very good results and 
and at the same time work on these principles. They are not either or. They're definitely together. And why not work with a company who take great pride in working with it, invest in better processing, invest in, in protecting the environment, and at the same time also working with the other principle because ESG is remembering that G is only one out of three. Uh, so it's also equally important to actually look at society. How can we um, how can we be responsible in that context? And also the governmental, how can we make sure that regulation, for instance, is supporting fertility and fertility um, treatment and after fertility treatment? So for, for us, for instance, for, for the donors, how can we make sure that we work for the long run of the children, of the donor and of the families? And from... What you've experienced as a result of doing the report, how do you feel the IVF sector is in terms of taking this issue on board and trying to improve its waste and its practices? Do you have conversations with your peers? Have you have people reached out to you at all? We have a conversation in the way that we at least have made a supplier code of conduct. So that any supplier to us, we are putting up requirements as to what, what will it take to supply to, to us. And I would hope actually that all fertility clinics would do the same so that, that they will start um, putting on requirements who should deliver to them and under what circumstances. Because through that, we can actually make sure each other improve as we go along. And I'm sure also that both demands from customers and donors will drive that in the right in the right direction. You mentioned there about the patients. And I'm curious as to whether you feel, I mean, we've been talking in this episode about how it, it could be quite a differentiating factor for an IVF clinic to say, and we have these green credentials as well as our success rates. What yeah, do you are. think about yeah. that? We're trying to ascertain whether it is important to the patient. Obviously, patient wants to bring a baby home. And this might be quite far down. I know when I was going through treatment seven years ago, it was the last thing on my mind. But obviously now I'm much more aware and more conscientious. Do you think it's something that the patients will start to add into their decision making? I'm sure the patient will be not that way. And I'm sure it will be excellent if the patient goes that direction, because then they can move things and they can start putting up requirements and they can look for who is more responsible and thereby you know, driving that. And, and if you take European Sperm Bank as an example, we, we, we really take pride in doing both. So staying with our high quality products. But let's take, for instance, our donor child program that, that we see as part of the, the social responsibility. And because we have that drive it, we do it on a management team, we do it in the organization, we do it with the board, everybody is, is looking at that. And if it has such an interest, things are moving and that is what it will take. And then combining with patients asking the same questions, then I think we can really create strong things together. Exactly. I think it has to be a collective kind of push forward doesn't it exactly well congrats on the report it was really a breath of fresh air to see that you had done it and thank you for just giving me your time i'll just show you this which i picked up when i was at geneva airport i have the i have all the goals there you have all the 17 yeah. and there you also have the three one that we selected i think that's actually probably necessary to to take a few of them and really really work with them otherwise yeah. it'll be too little and too many exactly. areas exactly i mean i've got two the fundamentals of my of my business and here's hoping that people right. just realize the importance of this and thank you for sharing what you're doing i hope we can help each other thank you very much
hearing what Annemette was kind of getting at about what can be done and lab items that can be switched, do you think that there's hope from what you heard? Definitely. And do you know what I found the most interesting about listening to Annemette talking was the way that they are 100% leading the way. And they're such Mm. a great example, aren't they, for other organisations to follow. I think we then think someone's got to start this and share good practice and share how they're doing it. And I love the fact that they've actually infiltrated this into their supplier requirements as well. So they want their suppliers to be as green as they're trying to get to um, and will only work with them if they do have those credentials. So maybe that's the way that it it starts and that does give me hope exactly because it's the changes have got to start somewhere and if all Mm. clinics were doing it or wanting to do it they would have to in essence put more pressure on manufacturers and one of the other things that I wanted to just share with you was a bit more of a conversation that happened as I mentioned before the international IVF initiative they'd been talking about this green IVF issue and they brought together some really interesting people including this lady called Dr Emma Saunders who you're going to hear now just an insight into why the industry needs to change And we just mentioned about suppliers. It's really fascinating hearing more about manufacturers, which you're going to hear as well. But first of all, here's Emma's overview. Everyone has a green agenda. Every company, every large company is at the forefront of and and shareholders are demanding for the the big PLCs that they have, you know, an environmental policy and that they meet certain environmental objectives every year. The focus hasn't ever been on this industry. And you can see why, because you know, there's been this need or this perceived need to use consumables, you know, consumable throwaway plastic because it's sterile, et cetera, et cetera. Until we actually start to put pressure on, let's find alternatives that they are out there. There are um, ways of incorporating recyclable plastics into Eppendorf tubes and pipette tips. I think about COVID and the effect that has had on plastic consumption in labs, where the volume of pipette tips that are being used and thrown away and all of these petrochemical based materials, there has to be alternatives and there are. It's just putting the pressure on companies that develop them to actually invest in that type of technology and bring them to market and bring that offer them to the people and everyone will take them. What did you make of what Emma said, Kate? Really fascinating. And the fact that she highlights the fact that There's all these big PLCs that are already demanding this. They are more sustainable. Everyone that they work with are more sustainable. Yet in the healthcare industry, due to the complexities of consumables and infection control, it's not even come on the radar yet. But I really see this as an opportunity for organisations, manufacturers, to produce recyclable healthcare goods. And I think there could be a real, real opportunity there. And I hope it is listened to. And and this is the thing. It does have to start really with the manufacturers. And you're going to hear now a little snippet from a gentleman called Ricard Ledinder-Rossa, who is a sustainability specialist at Vitralife. Now, they provide IVF clinics with specialist equipment from all over the world. And he just explains a bit more about this issue and about his role. Using all these plastics in all these different appliances, if the world is really going to reach the circularity goal, this needs to change. And the hard thing for us in this business uh, or industry is that changes like that takes several years to implement. So we really need to start now and be ahead of the legislators. Otherwise, we risk ending up in a really tricky situation. Uh, where we can't find the right suppliers, we don't have the right types of plastics because they will be phased out in three years' time, but change products for us will take five years. Hopefully that will be, won't be like that, but there's still a, a risk mitigating part 
in this from a risk uh, business perspective as well. Is your job quite quite unique, as it were, in this like industry? I found you through LinkedIn, and I, and I thought it was quite unique. You, you know your title. Have you been there many years? And what kind of resistance do you get in the company? Or would you say that it's it's quite easy to convince them that this is the way to go? I've only worked for one year in Vitra Life. Uh, and I think, I don't know, but I think uh, in the industry, yes, it might be a b- little bit unique still uh, to have a sustainability specialist. Uh, but uh, the reason why I actually went into Vitra Life uh, was that they had the responsible person for sustainability in the top management. That's the silver lining that I hold on to when I talk to companies that it has to be in top management. Otherwise, I will struggle too much. I won't have effect for the things that I want to do. Uh, So that's, I think that is also one thing connected to what Chip talked about. You really need to have the top management, the highest level, aware at least parts of the top management, because there will always be resistance. But then at least you can find enough space or enough time. I can arrange the meetings to convince them. I think the idea of clinics having sustainability managers as a role, I mean, I think even organizations having sustainability managers as a role is a new thing. So it's going to take time, isn't it? It is. And actually listening to him made my heart sink a bit because I thought, oh, gosh, just when I feel like, and you asked me earlier, you know, do I have hope? Yes, I do. But now the thought that it could take another five years. We, environment, we don't have five years to make a change. We've already seen that, that things are a drastic situation now and we need to make a change now, not in five years' time. So that's a bit of a heart sink. Great that it's doing it and great that, like you say, there are these posts that you can have a sustainability specialist working within organisations when we're with a, working within the fertility industry. But it just needs to be quicker. Oh, exactly. And... I think the fact he was saying about, you know, change coming, it's got to be in people's considerations, hasn't it? But I suppose from the patient point of view, as we were asking earlier, you don't want to think that anything in that lab could be at risk if it's not like the best, you know, is a biodegradable Petri dish acceptable compared to a glass one? I don't know whether they exist. I was just like saying a random (laughs) example, but do you know what I mean? Like, or is it that you just are going to trust that these labs, like there was a conversation I heard about making the tubes smaller and the dishes smaller that are used and the pipettes smaller, all these things that could be smaller, they don't need to be the size they are. They're little things that are surely going to have then like ripples across the whole healthcare space if these pieces of equipment are changed. Who knows? We saw what happened with the pandemic vaccine. Maybe people can put their heads together in terms of a whole sector trying to be greener. Who knows? Absolutely. And I just kind of want to say, I just think it's, I'm finding it really fascinating with these conversations that it's embryologists that are highlighting this. Yeah. Um, And is it because they see the impact on the environment for the future of embryos of children? Is it because it's so close to their heart that they actually want these embryos to be growing up and become babies, children, adults in a more sustainable life and environment? Well, if we think about that, there is a younger generation of people coming into work in the field. So they're going to have different morals and values, aren't they? And hopefully this is a fundamental part. I mean, these conversations I've heard, like we were saying, it's all embryologists. They're all quite young. They're all female, interestingly. Not that that's got anything to do with it. Um, And I'm talking about a sample of two, actually. So I can't (laughs) say they're all. But I think it's something that will hopefully get you thinking. Do you think from what you've heard, Kate, that this might prompt you to ask more of your patients about whether they'd factor in the green thought process? That's a really good question. 
I'd like to say yes, but I think until clinics start showing that they are and maybe having that little badge of we're a green green clinic, I think there's not a conversation to be had because mm. how can they even make that decision until we do have a clinic that can be yeah. like that? You've got enough to worry about, haven't you? Yeah. It's really over to you in terms of what we ask for this episode. Is a clinic's green credentials a differentiator for you when it comes to having treatment? You heard Danny say it could be, and Annemette as well talks about how it could be something that you start to add into the decision-making process. And so for this series of the Fertility Podcast, we're really keen to hear your thoughts on what we're talking about. You can email us, info at thefertilitypodcast.com. Or if you go over to Instagram or Twitter, both at Fertility Poddy. And me at Your Fertility Nurse. There's going to be polls running there asking just a couple of questions about the episode. If you are at a clinic and this is part of the conversation, we'd love to know as well. We'd love to showcase them if there are clinics who are flying green flags and, you know, really making it as part of their marketing material, then do let us know. All the details are in the show notes. As we said, we'd love to hear from you. You can rate and review us to help other people know that this is worth listening to. And especially as we've had such a big break, it would be really good to get some excitable activity happening so that those lovely people over at Apple might even bung us up in the new and noteworthy because they'll be mm. like, what's going on? There's all these people saying the fertility podcast is worth a listen. Thank you, as always, for your ears. And we'll be back in a week. So thanks again to this series sponsor, Tomorrow, who digitally track frozen eggs and embryos, offering transparency directly to patients for the first time. Their solution also removes most of the manual steps in the current cryomanagement process, significantly reducing the possibility of error. To learn more or to talk to your healthcare provider about storing your embryos or eggs with Tomorrow, visit tomorrow.org.